From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. 64, that's the official death toll for the 2017 hurricanes in Puerto Rico, but a new analysis from Harvard indicates that many more died, from 800 to 8,000, maybe even more. I think the key takeaway here is that the mortality rate was increased and it stayed high throughout the rest of the year. When we think about disasters, disaster response planning, we think of an acute event, a whole bunch of people die, and then life goes on. Well, that is not what we're observing in disasters now and certainly not in Puerto Rico. Also, the South Pacific can be paradise, but not for children in the path of rising seas. I think when the Marshall Island will be gone, it's like the end of life to me, like the end of the world. Imagining that is very horrifying. That and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRI and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Back in 2015, the Paris Climate Agreement set two goals. Parties agreed that planet warming should in no event be allowed to exceed 2 degrees centigrade above pre-industrial levels, but it would be better to limit the warming to 1.5 degrees. At this point, the pledges made by individual countries so far will not achieve either goal, but a team based at Stanford University has calculated that the less warming in that half degree of difference could be worth $30 trillion in the world economy. They found that almost all nations would economically benefit from tighter restriction of temperatures, and saving the $30 trillion would cost less than half a trillion. Marshall Burke is an assistant professor of Earth System Science at Stanford University who led the study. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thanks a lot for having me. So your research says that it'll cost the world some $30 trillion more if we go from 1.5 degrees centigrade to 2 degrees centigrade in global warming. Where would that money come from? Who would be charged that $30 trillion? So the $30 trillion number we have is a global total. So this is adding up the sort of additional losses we would suffer at 2 degrees instead of 1.5 degrees around the world. So think of this as a global number. But importantly, we find that these sort of costs, if you will, or, or benefits, if you, if you want to think about it in terms of staying at 1.5 degrees Celsius, we find that these benefits are unequally distributed. So we find that the largest benefits, at least in percentage terms, will be in the poorest parts of the world, countries that are already very hot and for whom any additional warming exacts a lot of additional economic damage. So we find that the benefits will be largest in the tropics. So Marshall, explain that to me. Why will these poor tropical countries get hit harder? Don't they have less infrastructure? Yeah, so our study is based on a historical understanding of how economies in the past have responded to changes in temperature. So we have a half century of data from countries around the world that measure economic output at an annual level. And what we do is we use those data to understand, okay, historically, when the temperature has gone up by a degree Celsius, how much has economic output changed? And what we find when we do that is if you're a cold country, and you warm up the temperature a little bit, these countries often do a little bit better. You can see this very clearly, for instance, in the Icelandic data. Iceland is a really cold place. If you crank up the temperature a little bit in Iceland historically, Iceland does better in terms of economic output. Now, the opposite is true in hot countries. These countries are already quite hot, and as you crank up the temperature, we see large economy-wide impacts of higher-than-normal temperatures. 
Your study is mainly GDP-focused, and you don't look at specific sectors. But give us some idea of the sectors that would be really hit hard by this incremented warming. Yeah, our study focuses on total economic output, so GDP, gross domestic product, which is just the value of all the stuff that's produced in a country in a given year. But you're right that we might think that changes in climate would affect different sectors differently. Our study doesn't look at that directly, but a, a sort of a host of other research looks at this. So we know that agricultural productivity suffers when it's hot, and so this could this is one reason why it's probably true that poorer countries suffer more when the temperature goes up. They are largely dependent on agriculture, and so any losses to agriculture are sort of magnified for them. But the impacts extend, we think, far beyond agriculture. So there's lots of work now showing that even labor productivity in high-tech manufacturing suffers when the temperature is higher. We see lower cognitive performance when the temperature is higher. So kids taking standardized tests do worse when the temperature is hotter on the day of the test, right? So we see overall declines in, in cognitive function. And so these likely have influence on many sectors that, you know, again, are far beyond agriculture. So you say places like Iceland, maybe Russia, Canada, fairly cold places might actually see a little more economic progress with a bit more warming. Can you explain that for us? Yeah, that's right. I think it's easy to start intuitively. So just think about how comfortable we are at different temperatures as humans, right? We're very comfortable at sort of mild temperatures. We're quite uncomfortable at really cold temperatures or really hot temperatures, right? And so you could imagine if you're in a really cold place and you warm up the temperature a bit, we're more comfortable and we're likely more productive. And it turns out that shows up really clearly in the GDP data of these countries. So you suggest that if we could keep global warming to just one and a half degrees centigrade, the world would save some $30 trillion between now and the end of the century. What would it cost to save those $30 trillion? That's right. So our study focuses on the benefits, the economic benefits of reducing warming, basically, of keeping warming at 1.5 degrees uh, versus 2 degrees Celsius. But you have to weigh that against the costs of meeting these more stringent mitigation targets. So other folks have tried to calculate the cost. All right, what would be the differential cost in terms of, you know, how much money do we have to spend to transition our energy sector away from dirty fuels to cleaner fuels, for instance? So what would be the total economic cost around the world? And the estimates that other folks have come up with are on the order of half a trillion dollars. And so that is basically an order of magnitude lower than what we calculate the benefits to be of undertaking those actions. So to us, the cost-benefit calculation looks wildly favorable for stronger mitigation. So Marshall, one thing that really concerns me about your study is one could argue that it's going to be very tough to hit one and a half degrees uh, centigrade warming to limit it to that, given what is going on right now among all these countries that have agreed to the Paris Climate Agreement, not even thinking about the United States, which is trying to get out of it. I mean, what are the odds of us being able to achieve these savings that you say that we would have if we could achieve that? So the odds of achieving the 1.5C target right now are, are pretty low, and doing so depends on us inventing carbon capture technologies that do not yet exist and deploying those technologies sort of massively such that by mid-century, we're actually pulling more carbon out of the atmosphere than we're putting into the atmosphere. So we need to go sort of net negative in emissions terms by mid-century. So the optimist in me wants to believe that, that we can get there and perhaps numbers like ours would suggest that the economic returns of getting there are, are, are higher than we thought. But you're right that we are certainly not on path right now to meet these more stringent goals. I think bigger picture, what our estimates suggest that 
any effort we put in to reduce warming is likely to generate large economic benefits around the world. Um, so right now we're headed for three degrees Celsius. If we can keep it below that, that's going to generate benefits. If we can go all the way to two, that generates even more benefits. So what our results again suggest is that there are large benefits from even relatively modest reductions in future warming. Some people listening to us would say, okay, this is interesting, but how do you put a price on some of the things that are likely to happen in the years ahead if we don't hit this one and a half degree C target? In this broadcast, there is a segment about kids living in the Marshall Islands looking ahead at their future. And um, at two or three degrees C, they have no homeland. Their Marshall Islands are going to be underwater, as uh, are a number of other low-lying places. How do you put a price on losing the places that people can live? That's a great question. And that is not something that our current approach grapples with very well. So all we are able to measure in this approach is things that show up in gross domestic products. So again, the, just the value of the, the goods and services that are produced in an economy in a year. So we will not capture many of these other very important things that, you know, loss of homeland, loss of habitat, that we know to be very important, that we imagine will likely be fundamentally affected in the future, but things that do not show up in this measure of GDP. So to the extent that we think those things are important and that they could be negatively affected by, by future warming, then those, they won't be included in our estimates and our estimates will be an underestimate of the impacts of, of more warming in the future. Marshall Burke is an assistant professor of Earth System Science at Stanford University. His paper was published recently in Nature. Thanks so much, Professor, for taking the time. Thanks so much for having me. There's plenty of news beyond the headlines these days, and our guide is Peter Dykstra. He's an editor with Environmental Health News, SEHN.org, and DailyClimate.org. On the line now from Atlanta, Georgia. Hey there, Peter. What's going on? Hi, Steve. Let's go to the Appalachians, the border of Virginia and West Virginia. There are tree sitters, some of whom have been up for as many as 50 days, trying to stop construction of the Mountain Valley Natural Gas Pipeline. Wow. What's their objection? Uh, their objections are many, one of which is that pipelines tend to break or spill and can threaten the ecosystems. This being their home, they're a little worried about that. They're also a little resentful, if you will, that the company that owns the Mountain Valley Natural Gas Pipeline actually started clear-cutting and preparing for the site before they had any permits, suggesting that the political process to build a pipeline may be a little bit rigged. Hey, Peter, I'm old enough to remember, and I think you are, the Redwood Summer, and then Julia Butterfly Hill, when she sat for how long in a tree? Well, I'm old enough to forget a lot of things, but I definitely remember that one. There was first the Redwood Summer, and then Julia Butterfly Hill was an activist from December 1997 to December 1999, a full two years, who sat in a redwood tree in Northern California to prevent logging in an old-growth redwood forest. Yes, I believe her tree was named Luna. Correct. Hey, what else do you have for us today? Next stop is New Mexico. The Rio Ceboya is an ecosystem that's uh, being degraded partly because cattle grazing and other things. There are workers from the U.S. Forest Service and some volunteers who have been out building the human equivalent of beaver dams to restore the ecosystem. They're basically imitating beavers. Huh? So why? 
Beaver dams built by humans. Uh, wildlife and fish, they say, are beginning to thrive. They've done 24 of the beaver dams this year with plans to do more. They create deeper water pools and more natural wetlands. There's got to be a catch. Well, here's a little irony. There are still cattle grazing there, so they have to worry about that for further degradation. But as they plant willow trees and build beaver dams to help restore this ecosystem, one of the other threats to that are real beavers who will move in before the restoration is complete. Huh. Well, maybe they'll sue for intellectual property rights as well. Hey, time to turn to uh, the history vaults. What do we have today? A lot of people will also remember that in 1984, one of the worst chemical accidents in human history in Bhopal, India, killed thousands when a chemical called methyl isocyanate leaked in a fairly large city. And in June 2010, eight years ago, Eight executives from the owners of the plant, Union Carbide, were convicted in absentia of negligence in this huge death toll. And by the way, I think there's an identical plant to Bhopal in Institute West Virginia that's still operating today. That's right. And Carbide eventually sold out of the plant in Bhopal, but not before eight of its executives were convicted. If they ever showed up for uh, sentencing, they would have faced only two years and a $2,000 fine. A half a million people were affected by the gas leak in Bhopal. The government confirmed 3,800 deaths. Those numbers are almost uh, universally dismissed as being too low. There are other estimates that say that 8,000, maybe as high as 16,000, died as a result of the Bhopal disaster. Warren Anderson, the CEO and chair of Union Carbide at the time, was declared a fugitive from justice. He died here in the U.S. in 20. 14. Without serving a day. No. Peter Dykstra is with Environmental Health News. That's ehn.org and dailyclimate.org. Thanks, Peter. We'll talk to you again real soon. Okay, Steve. Thanks a lot. Talk to you soon. And you can find more on these stories at our website, loe.org. Getting the math right for the hurricane disaster in Puerto Rico. Just ahead here on Living on Earth, keep listening. If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. Hurricanes Irma and Maria devastated Puerto Rico when they hit the island last September, and as hurricane season begins again, power is still not fully restored and infrastructure remains fragile. But official figures claim that the death toll was modest, that a mere 64 people had died as a result of the disaster. Well, now a team led by the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health has made a new calculation of mortality related to the hurricanes, and the new figure shows the official estimates to be a startling undercount. We're joined now by two of the senior authors, team leader and epidemiologist Caroline Bucky and emergency room physician Sachit Balsari. Welcome to Living on Earth. Thank you for having us. Thank you. Caroline, what was the genesis of this? What was the idea that generated this study? 
After Hurricane Maria, it was clear, and in fact, the government acknowledged that there should be some reevaluation of the death count in the wake of the hurricane, because the official estimate was 64 deaths due to the hurricane. And in the aftermath of Hurricane Maria, it was clear that there was a ton of infrastructure damage, and that in fact, this was probably an underestimate. In the wake of disasters, it's very hard actually to estimate mortality, because when infrastructure is so damaged, Issuing death certificates is difficult and normal health systems are not functioning well. And so one of the ways that you can provide an independent estimate of mortality in the wake of disasters is to go and do a household survey study like the one that we did. And what that means is that you are providing an estimate that is not dependent on the death registry system or on death certificate issuance. And so you can capture deaths as well as other nuances like infrastructure damage, loss of utilities like electricity and water, as well as other types of suffering. So what the reported causes of death were according to family members. Sachit, why did you get involved in this project? Well, here at the FXB Center for Health and Human Rights, we have routinely worked with vulnerable populations to leverage science, big data for human rights advocacy. So these kinds of situations are situations that our scientists are very familiar with and very comfortable working in. I've been a student of disaster medicine and humanitarian crises for the past 20 years, and I work closely with Professor Jennifer Leaning. And we felt when Caroline reached out that this was another excellent opportunity for us to leverage the experience that we had elsewhere to advocate for the people in Puerto Rico. Caroline, as I understand it, your study came up with some 4,600 excess deaths from the storm. Actually, the storms, I should say, right? Because this covers a longer period of time. Just what was your method there to come up with the numbers? So before I describe the method, I think it's very, very important, and we've seen in the last few days, the importance of emphasizing that this is not a precise estimate. So there are very large confidence intervals around this estimate. And so the range of the 95% confidence intervals is from about 800 to over 8,000. And the estimate as it stands came out as 4,645. But it's misleading to quote that as a number because it's by definition, it's not a precise number. And that's because of the methodology. So we used a survey approach where we randomized households across Puerto Rico, and then we went door to door and we asked members of that household to tell us about their families, what the composition of the household was, how old the people were, the genders, if people had died, what they had died of and when they died, as well as asking about displacement, so who had moved into the house, who had left the house during that time period. And then we asked about utilities. So how long had you been without electricity or water or cellular telephone coverage? So we surveyed 3,299 households, which covers a population of approximately 9,500 people. And from that, we could calculate a mortality rate and we compared that mortality rate to the same period of time in Puerto Rico from 2016. So over that period of time from September 20th to December 31st, we compared the mortality rates. And the rate difference tells you about how many excess deaths occurred. And then from that rate difference, we multiplied it up to cover the whole population. And so there's a large amount of uncertainty associated with that calculation because there are many different ways 
to estimate the population size of Puerto Rico in the aftermath of the hurricane. And we used a fairly low number to account for the fact that we know people left the island leading up to the hurricane. And so we wanted to make sure that we were conservative with our estimate. Nevertheless, it is very uncertain. And the key point here is that this approach does not rely on infrastructure. It's very quick. It's very cheap. And if the government wanted to employ this type of approach in the future when their death registry system was not working well, it would be straightforward to implement a much larger survey, and then they could make the estimate much more precise. So I think the key takeaway here is that the precise number is less important than the fact that the mortality rate was increased and it stayed high throughout the rest of the year. By the way, for people who aren't scientists, they might say excess deaths. I mean, any death feels very personal. What's the scientific meaning of excess death? So essentially, we always expect some frequency of deaths in a population. People die. And so we're talking about deaths over and above what we would normally expect in that period of time. So that's what, what we're trying to calculate, the difference between what would normally happen and what we observed due to the hurricane. That's interesting, though, that your numbers, if it's arranged between 800 and, say, 8,000, still the government was talking about 64. Right. So even the low end of what you're talking about is quite a bit larger than what has been officially acknowledged. Absolutely. And interestingly, our results are consistent with several reports, a few academic reports and in the press that came out after the hurricane. And so out of those handful of studies, the only outlier is the government estimate of 64. And in fact, the government does acknowledge that that is an underestimate. And that's why they have issued this reevaluation of the death registry data. Sachit, so how has the government of Puerto Rico responded to your research. The governor of Puerto Rico in a press conference hours after the paper was published welcomed the research. He said he was looking forward to learning more. We have reached out to his offices and offered to be available to sit down and explain our findings to the offices. Now, you're an emergency physician. I know that your research didn't look at death certificates, so you don't have causes of death per se. But what do you think happened to these people who perished? Well, while we did not look at death certificates, we did ask people what their family members died from. We also asked people what they had continued to suffer from the interruption in services. And what we find are a few different things. As uh, Caroline explained, the persistence of the elevated mortality rate is what is of concern. When we think about disasters, disaster response planning, we think of an acute event, a whole bunch of people die, and then life goes on. Well, that is not what we're observing in disasters now, and certainly not in Puerto Rico. There was interruption of basic utilities for a long period of time. Large groups of populations did not have access to water, cellular phone coverage, and electricity for a good amount of time. One-third of all those that had died in the households that we had surveyed attributed those deaths to interruption of medical care. There was a variety of reasons that people provided, including broken down roads, disruption in the healthcare facilities themselves, inavailability of doctors, difficulty accessing medications, them not being able to use their respiratory machines, for example, nebulizers or CPAPs that people used at home, or dialysis machines that they went to their clinics for. 
This phenomenon of interrupted medical care is important for responders in the United States to pay attention to. We have seen that all the way back in Hurricane Katrina. We continue to see that in Sandy. Uh, nursing homes are affected. The elderly are dependent on life-sustaining equipment that is electricity-dependent. Even the evacuation of hospitals in Sandy was because the generators flooded and failed and patients had to move. It is that same phenomenon that we're seeing play out in Puerto Rico, but not just on the days of the event, but for months thereafter. So take a step back for a moment. We're in a period of time of a disrupted climate and likely to be more very serious storms that hit Puerto Rico. I mean, just this past year, we saw Houston, we saw Florida, we saw Puerto Rico. Oh, and out west, we saw a whole bunch of fires. What does your research tell us we should be thinking about, acting about, going forward as a society as we deal with the pressures of climate disruption? We should map our vulnerabilities better. That is not just the role of the government, but community preparedness is really the key to all our societies faring better with these disasters. It is important to know where are the uncles and aunts that are on dialysis, who is on breathing machines, what equipment is your neighbor dependent on, even high-resource populations that think they're otherwise insulated from disruptions and climate change are very much vulnerable. Think about the elderly that lived in high-rises in downtown Manhattan after Hurricane Sandy. This was a rich population normally used to all kinds of services that were trapped without food, water, electricity, and access to medicines on the 30th story and the 40th story of high buildings. Again, the California bushfires and the demographic that was affected. So no one, no one is spared from the impact of these adverse climate events that we are observing. I gather that this uh, research was conducted over a very short period of time. It just took you a couple of months to do the interviews and then uh, crunch the numbers. How do you feel about that? And how do you feel about the response that the public has had to this? So the quick turnaround of this study and the ability to do it within, we completed the surveys within three or four weeks and the analysis took another couple of weeks. So this was a very quick assessment. And we had a small budget, and we were constrained in the sample size as a result. So 3,299 households was a lot. But since deaths are rare events, even after the hurricane, that means that our estimate is imprecise. So although overwhelmingly the response has been positive and people have welcomed some insights and I think they've welcomed the fact that we've made the data freely available online for anyone who wants to analyze it, there is some pushback about the uncertainty of our estimate. And I think one of the challenges here is communicating scientific uncertainty to the public. This is a really important part of our job, and I think we probably don't do it very well. It's very important that we continue to state that this was a small survey, the uncertainty was large, it doesn't invalidate the fact that we find significantly higher mortality. Household-based surveys are fairly standard. So the innovation here was not that we did a household-based surveys. For decades, the scientific literature has deliberated on how best to do these household surveys and how they complement death registry data and other forms of accounting for deaths after disasters. So 
While the response has been overwhelming, we hope that it complements any future endeavors that the government undertakes to establish both the accuracy of the death toll, but also to support closure for these families. Going into the hurricane season, we are hoping, and, and the governor said so, that they will relook at how deaths are counted in the aftermath of disasters and what Puerto Rico comes up with could potentially help the rest of the country as well. In the United States, currently, a death is attributed to a disaster event if it is noted on a death certificate. But the criteria for noting death on a death certificate is not known to most. There are very few people that are trained in understanding that even in the days following a disaster, there are several indirect causes of death that can be attributed to the event and that this has to be noted on the death certificate. So we do need expanded training and awareness of how these deaths have to be recorded appropriately so that they can be counted. In other words, you're saying if somebody couldn't get to their, uh, say, cardiac medication for several days and they had a heart attack, if they write heart attack on the death certificate and they don't attribute it to the fact that the streets were flooded, that they're missing something. Precisely. How does your study help with closure from such a disaster? Well, I think it is important for deaths from disasters to be acknowledged. It is certainly important to families. They want to know that society knows why they lost their beloved. It also has financial ramifications. People have access to aid assistance from FEMA, from other government agencies, if they have lost someone in a disaster. And it is important that that be recognized and that the families be given access to the aid that they deserve. Why do you suppose that the government got this so wrong, the scale of the loss of life in Puerto Rico? The numbers that the government declared were numbers that they were working with. It is how deaths were being counted in the early days after the disaster. I think the failure was in recognizing that the official methodology for counting death was highly flawed. And had they looked around and gathered data from multiple sources outside of just the death registry data, they might have been working with very different information. I mean, you guys took, what, less than two months to do this. Why didn't Puerto Rico, why didn't the Federal Emergency Management Agency, why didn't they trot out this more sophisticated math themselves? Well, currently, this type of approach has been largely an academic exercise in the wake of disasters. And in fact, this has been occurring in studies since the 1970s to try and estimate the impact on the population. And as it stands now, the way that the government counts deaths is through death registries, and it does not use these additional sources of information. So what we're advocating is to have a shift where we do start to uh, see these types of studies being done by the government as well. And we hope that it will become more standard. At the moment, these are largely scientific exercises undertaken by academics rather than uh, by the government itself. Academic exercises, and yet your study is on the front pages of many newspapers and, and many national broadcasts. That's true. The fact that the government has acknowledged from very early on 
that they needed to reevaluate the number of deaths attributed to the hurricane and the fact that they have commissioned George Washington University to go through all of the death registry data again, which will take some time. It shows that they are aware that there are limitations. The infrastructure damage in Puerto Rico after the hurricane was enormous, and they were dealing with all kinds of other priorities at the same time as trying to keep track of mortality. And so, you know, that is a huge challenge, and it remains a huge challenge. And so moving forward, I think the most important thing is that we can complement activities when infrastructure is destroyed with these quite simple approaches, which are quick and can be done in a simple and transparent way. You know, famously, Heisenberg, the researcher, said anything you measure, you're going to affect. How did doing this research in Puerto Rico affect you? Profoundly, I think these kinds of projects or spending time in these environments is a constant reminder of how lucky the rest of us are. Yeah, it was very affecting. And of course, my heart goes out to all of the people who suffered in the wake of Hurricane Maria. But I was also quite hopeful in some ways because the students that we worked with who conducted the surveys, these were graduate students in psychology from Carlos Albiza University and Ponce Health Sciences University. They were utterly dedicated, very bright. They worked so hard round the clock to get these surveys done. And they have been working on their own time with the communities, supporting communities who have suffered so much from day one after the hurricane. And their energy and dedication, I felt, was really a hopeful thing. And so while, you know, the devastation has been enormous to the island, I do think that there is hope because the Puerto Ricans we worked with were just so resilient and hardworking and determined. And so that gave me some small hope. Caroline Bucky and Sachet Balsari are with Harvard University's T.H. Chan School of Public Health and authors of the study of the Puerto Rican mortality. Thank you both for taking the time with us today. Thank you for having us. Thank you so much. You can hear our program anytime on our website or get an audio download. The address is LOE.org. That's LOE.org. There you'll also find pictures and more information about our stories. And we'd like to hear from you. You can reach us at comments at LOE.org. Once again, comments at LOE.org. Our postal address is Post Office Box 99007, Boston, Massachusetts, 02199. And you can call our listener line anytime at 617-287-4121. That's 617-287-4121. Coming up, a boy dreams of becoming president of a land that may not be there when he comes of age. That's just ahead here on Living on Earth. Stay tuned. Support for Living on Earth comes from the Gordon and Betty Moore Foundation and from a friend of Sailors for the Sea, working with boaters to restore ocean health. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood.
The vast Pacific Ocean surrounds the coral atolls that make up the former U.S. territory of the Marshall Islands, and the Marshalls typify the vulnerabilities of low-lying lands facing climate disruption. The Ground Truth Project and Frontline PBS have produced an online interactive documentary titled The Last Generation that reveals the realities of rising seas through the eyes of three young residents. I was sitting on the seawall. I didn't see the wave coming. It just pushed me off, and I thought it was something else than a wave. I thought it was like a monster. My grandmother told me to come to the church. So I ran here and sit, watching everybody yelling, watching the babies crying, and it was not good. My mom woke me in the middle of the night. When I woke up, I saw a lot of water. It was in, uh, around my knees. People were evacuating very quickly. I wasn't scared, but I was shocked. In that moment, I started talking to myself. Is this king tide happen because we are bad people? These are not rare occurrences in the Marshall Islands. Reporter Katie Wirth of Frontline PBS worked on the documentary. The Marshall Islands is an archipelago of very, very low-lying islands in the middle of the Pacific. Its capital, Majuro, where we were, uh, sits at an average of 5 feet 11 inches above sea level, which makes it one of the most vulnerable places on Earth to sea level rise. And it's already happening there. There's evidence that's showing that floods are already on the rise. There are more droughts. A recent study funded by the Department of Defense showed that with just about 15 inches more of sea level rise, islands like Majuro will be devastated by floods on an annual basis. Now, your documentary looks at the Marshall Islands and the flooding risks there from the perspective of three different children. Why tell this story through kids? Climate change is one of those stories that people tend to turn the page on, and we wanted to make a story that would be hard to turn the page on and that you'd want to lean forward on and learn about, and we wanted it to be compelling. And my reporting partner, Michelle Meisner, had read somewhere that kids in the Marshall Islands can tell you all about climate change, and that intrigued us. So what would they tell us? How well do they really understand it? How do they think about their futures on this island that literally may no longer exist within their lifetime. Well, let's hear from one of those kids. This is a boy named Iserman. He's nine years old at the time you recorded this. He's playing at the beach, picking up crabs and little sea creatures, talking about why he likes living on the Marshall Islands. The Marshall Islands can go outside, can sleep in. There's not like cities everywhere. It's kind of like you're free. In my opinion, it's the only place that I would ever live in, if I had to choose. But of course, his family may have to choose. How untenable is it to live on the Marshall Islands right now? What are residents looking at, say, by the end of the century in terms of sea level rise? What the projections show is that in the worst case scenario, in 100 years, nearly every inch of these islands will be underwater. But that's the worst case scenario. In best case scenarios, the advance of sea level rise will be much slower. And the people who live on islands like Majuro will have much longer time to adapt and to think about their future. As far as when people may have to leave, 
habitability is a really complicated question. So what is habitable to one person isn't habitable to another. One community might be willing to live with devastating annual floods and another community would not. But what we do know is the Marshallese have found ways to live on these islands for 2,000 years in an environment that most people would describe as extremely isolated and unforgiving. So they are looking for ways to adapt. So how are they getting fresh water on the islands? I mean, how much are they seeing in, in terms of saltwater intrusion already? And for that matter, what about growing enough food? I mean, salt water, you know, is not great for agriculture. Saltwater intrusion is a big problem for agriculture. They're working on collecting rainwater more as drinking water, but that doesn't solve the problem of how to grow things. But there are these projects to have raised beds that, you know, buy them a meter, you know, buy them three feet. People that live on these islands are resourceful and they're thinking deeply about how to survive there as long as possible. Of course, the U.S. has a long history in the Marshall Islands in the 50s. Our military tested, I think it's a total of 67 nuclear bombs on the Bikini Atoll. Tell me a bit about that history. So after World War II, the United States was looking for somewhere to test its most powerful nuclear weapons. And they chose the Marshall Islands because they seemed to, from a U.S. perspective, to be far away from anything and small and powerless. Of course, for the Marshallese, they are not far away from anything. They are home. And it involved displacing many people. One of the children in your movie is a descendant of one of the families that had to leave Bikini during the atom bomb testing. She's 14-year-old Julia, and in your film, she's wearing her school uniform. There's a picture of a nuclear explosion on it when you were talking to her. Let's hear a bit from her. I feel alone and sad because Bikini people are not there at their homeland and we are borrowing someone's homeland to live. It's like homeless, yeah. If we move from here, I would be embarrassed, sad, angry, and mad. I think it might happen because people are not listening. What does she mean there, not listening? They are watching what the world is doing, and the Marshallese have taken a real leadership role in um, the UN talks around climate change, and they have pushed for very ambitious goals to be set by the world. They've watched the world set less ambitious goals than the Marshall Islands would like them to, and now they're watching the U.S. under the Trump administration back away from its promises and back out of the Paris Agreement. So even the goals that have been set are not looking as likely to be achieved as they did a couple years ago. And even kids are aware of this in the Marshall Islands, and that is probably what she meant when she said that people are not listening. Yeah, how ironic is it that Julia's family had to leave Bikini because of the nuclear weapons testing, and now as the world's second largest emitter of greenhouse gases, we're you know, forcing this current generation eventually to abandon their homes as well. 
that's not lost on the Marshallese. There's a very interesting historical touchstone for the Marshallese of being displaced. They've already experienced displacement, and it's a really sensitive issue for them. It's caused multi-generational trauma for them. And so when they think about being displaced again, again by forces that are out of their control, they can grasp what that will look like for them and, and the, the pain it will cause generations of their people. As I understand it, it's not that difficult, despite the anti-immigration climate right now in this country, for Marshall Islanders, the Marshallese, to come to live and, and work in the United States. For the longest time, it was a U.S. territory. And I guess it's some part of their compensation package from when all the nuclear bombs were being tested there. But Kate, yeah. I believe you didn't talk to any kid who wanted to emigrate. In fact, there was a 12-year-old Wilmer who says he wants to be president of the Marshall Islands when he grows up, and he makes that point in such a poignant way. I think when the Marshall Islands will be gone, it's like the end of life to me, like the end of the world. Imagining that is very horrifying. Yes, I'm dedicated to this place. Like I was destined to, to be in this place. That's why I'm gonna stay here, I'm not gonna leave. I'm going to stay watch, even if it means to drown. Whoa, that's such a sorrowful thought for such a young person. Yeah, um, we didn't speak to anyone who wanted to leave. I mean, the Marshallese have been living on these islands for 2,000 years. As former President Christopher Loak told the United Nations, everything I know and everyone I love is in the hands of those of us here today. He said that at the Paris, at the meeting in Paris that led to the Paris Accord. It's their home, it's their culture, it's the best for them, it's the only place they want to be. What's next now for these people living on the Marshall Islands? Well, what the science shows is that they're going to be experiencing more nuisance floods, many times a year, more serious floods every few years and then eventually every year. Their water table is going to become salted. They're going to experience more droughts. But they're also looking for ways to survive and thrive despite these challenges. The interactive documentary The Last Generation is a joint project with the Ground Truth Project and Frontline, PBS, Katie Wirth is a reporter for it. And Katie, thank you so much for taking the time with us today. You're so welcome, and thanks for having me. On the next Living on Earth, former EPA Administrator Gina McCarthy has a bold vision in her new job as a professor of public health at Harvard University. We wanted to put a different spin and face on climate change and its connection to public health. Why not try to not just fix the planet in the future, but let's fix public health today? From rulemaker to changemaker, Gina McCarthy, next time on Living on Earth. We head from the vast Pacific Ocean to our North American backyards now. If we're lucky and plan our plantings carefully, Mary McCann says we can observe a wealth of tuneful companions raising their nestlings. Here's today's bird note. An American robin belts out its spring song from the top of a tree. 
perched on the roof of a garden shed, a house finch joins in with its refrain. Next, a song sparrow hops out of a low thicket and adds its music to the medley. You can find these three species nesting within one small garden, making their nests in a tree, a large shrub, or directly on the ground. By selecting different nesting strata, the species avoid competing for the same nesting sites. Ground nesting birds include sparrows, juncos, quails, ducks, and some warblers. These birds are particularly vulnerable to predators and human disturbance while on their nests. The adult birds will stay on or near the nest while incubating eggs, but once the young depart, the parents leave too. Birds won't occupy their nests until the next breeding season. If you plant your garden in multiple layers, trees both short and tall, shrubs and ground-hugging thickets, you may be rewarded with a multi-layered medley of birdsong. I'm Mary McCann. For some photos, hop on over to our website, loe.org. We leave you this week deep in a New England wetland. In the company of eastern spadefoot toads. They get their name from the distinctive bony growth on the bottom of their hind feet, which helps them dig backwards deep into the earth where they lurk most of their time. But in spring and summer, they head to a vernal pool with their mind on only one thing, mating. Naturalist Tom Bowler recorded these noisy toads in the rain at the Parker River National Wildlife Refuge on Plum Island in Massachusetts. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Savannah Christensen, Jenny Doring, Jamie Kaiser, Hannah Loss, Don Lyman, Helen Palmer, Ainsley O'Neill, Adelaide Chen, and Yolanda Omari. Jay Grigo engineered our show, and Allison Lerishteen composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, and like us, please, on our Facebook page, PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. 
Support also comes from the Energy Foundation, serving the public interest by helping to build a strong, clean energy economy. And from Solar City, America's solar power provider. Solar City is dedicated to revolutionizing the way energy is delivered by giving customers a renewable alternative to fossil fuels. Information at 888-997-1703. That's 888-997-1703. PRI Public Radio International.